Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Friday morning, the 26th of October, with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. There is to be a clampdown on drink driving from today. There is no change in the level of alcohol under the new legislation, but there is a change in the penalty. Driving with even a small amount of drink on you could result in being put off the road. The technical measurement is 50 to 80 milligrams of alcohol per 100 millilitres of blood. Drivers found to be at that limit were previously fined and given three penalty points. In future, they'll be disqualified from driving for three months. The, the disqualification is automatic and can not be appealed. And the disqualified driver will also be fined some €200. Euro. Tony Toner is a training director with the Institute of Advanced Motorists of Ireland. He joins us now. And I suppose, Tony, people are, are slow to put a, a figure on that in the uh, in terms of the amount of alcohol that it, it means. Does it mean a pint or half a pint or two pints? It's a very small amount of alcohol and I think the Daily Mail has taken the brave step of saying that you could be over the limit with half a pint on you say. Good morning Michael. Uh, Michael genuinely I uh, you know I, I I don't give in to that measurement for people because I, I think it leads people into a false sense of security. Uh, effectively if you take a decent dollop of your mum's sherry trifle. You could be in the proverbial manure business here with this new legislation. Uh, and people, we must get into our heads that this legislation is referring to drink driving, mm. not drunk driving. It's not people wandering, uh, you know, up a footpath hoping to find a car that fits the key that they have found in their pocket and they get in and they try and meander their way home. Driving and with one eye open uh, because you know, uh, there's blurred vision and that sort of thing. Obviously, who look incapacitated in any way. Like the RSA, you know what I mean, love them or hate them, they have done massive, massive research uh, on drink impairment through alcohol. Hmm. And arising out of that, uh, and arising out of legislation that they've looked at in other countries, to get down the casualties, to get down the fatalities on Irish roads, uh, this is another spoke in their wheel 
and I, I'm certainly, and I don't mean to be a direct spokesman for the RSA, but when in in my career, when I was uh, there, it a young girl back in the seventies, and I looked at it this morning. Uh, in nineteen seventy eight, our road network was carrying less than a third of the volume of traffic we have today. Mm. Six hundred and twenty eight people were killed in our roads in 
accident as a result of drinking and driving. And I'm sure you'll meet many people who'll tell you they drove for years having three or four pints, never an accident in their lives. Michael, that's not, uh, dare I say it, the, the issue here is the reduction based on the research. And um, they're, they've brought it down um, now to where eight, 50 to 80 milligrams means you're three months off the road with a 200 euro fine. And for, for the thousands and thousands of people who are commuting and need a car for basic stuff, never mind work, this is a huge, um, you know, it's, it's a social change for a lot of people. Um, and you have to be ultra mindful mm. of the morning after, particularly as we go into our festive season, if I can call it that. All right, um, but, 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 but does, that mean that, does that mean that if you go uh, for lunch uh, and have a, a good meal and a, a glass of wine, that you're a danger on the roads? No, not, not danger. It means you're over the limit. The limit is the limit. But, uh, but does it mean the, you're a danger? The, Research, Michael, with alcohol in your system means there is a level of impairment there. And the RSA have been charged for this. They've come up with this. The legislation's gone through. And as you know, it was very protracted. There was a fair bit of, I think it was a long time since I heard about filibustering going on and all that. Because there is, as I said, this has a major social impact on, on many, many people in Ireland. Mm. But again... I, the, I, the road safety terrorist, as Shane Ross called uh, Michael Healy Ray, uh, who was saying that you could have two glasses of Guinness and drive without a bother. A pint, in other words. Um, I couldn't... Um, Michael... Uh, yeah, mm. with... The, the research, again, that's been done mm. with all of this, you know, we can counteract it. We can say, look, I've had two points in this, and, you know, mm. and it's, it hasn't affected me. I, I feel perfectly yeah. uh, uh, cognizant of what I'm doing and what I'm saying. And uh, I've done this for years. And the chances are uh, for them, they'll never be involved in a bump. But the rules of the game have changed. And whether any of us like it or not, we're now entering, as I said, a time in mm. year when the festivities start to, to, to mount up. And okay, we- but I suppose what I'm getting to, Tony, is the question of if it's fair. Uh, and I think the reason for putting that question to you is that, uh, like you, uh, because I think you sounded a, a little bit hesitant uh, about uh, the danger that you might pose if you have one pint on the road. Most people would think you're probably all right. Uh, but fair enough, bring in the legislation don't let me have a pint. Don't let me drink and drive. Uh, and that's fair enough. I, I think a lot of people will accept that. But where they have a problem is if they misjudge it from the night before uh, and they've had a, a few pints and whatever way the body has processed the alcohol, they're a little bit over the limit. They're not drunk. Uh, they're not feeling impaired in any way, uh, but there's a, a, a reading of alcohol in their system and they're off the road for three months and they may feel hard done by. Well, Michael, the point I was trying to make there again was, was uh, if, if we had the ability to, to, to do the research that has been lead and put together under, you know, to put this legislation uh, into law um, and impairment is there, with alcohol in your system at this level. Hence, we have this legislation. That's what the RSA is saying. Uh, we as motorists now 
have to change our, 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 our again our socialization so as that we do not find ourselves and mm. um, even though we are standing up straight we are having as you said um, you know normal conversation mm. normal judgment this that and the other the fact is now uh, 50 to 80 milligrams for a, a, a driver who is not a, say, a professional mm. driver or a novice driver. Pro- uh, probably, le- probably less than half a, a pint a, a, in reality. Uh, but, uh, and who's to say, uh, and uh, we certainly aren't giving that uh, as a definitive figure, uh, but just for the sake of talking, it's a very small uh, amount of is, alcohol. It is minuscule. This is tantamount to you going into the village shop buying a packet of wine gums and finding yourself over the limit. So does that mean, if you're a professional driver, you really shouldn't drink tonight if you're going to drive tomorrow uh, at all? Well, you know, for ordinary individuals, 50 to 80 milligrams is this new legislation. Mm. Uh, For the professional learner and novice driver, it's 20 which 20. yeah, which is and has been the case. But I mean, if you if you need your car for your job, uh, looking at this new legislation, yeah, 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 yeah. You, you simply do not drink, Andrew. You do, you do at all in any sort of eight to ten hour window before you get into the car. If you're if you're mm. drinking any way of uh, if you, if you have two if you have two pints and go to bed for eight hours and get up and drive to work and you're stopped. There's a, a chance. Is four units, Michael. There's two units per point. It's something around that, if my mm-hmm. memory's right. That's right. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. I stand to be corrected. Yeah. But uh, you're talking four hours then, and no amount of uh, you know you know uh, an Irish breakfast and black coffee is going to dissipate that alcohol. Time mm-hmm. is the only thing that dissipates alcohol in the system, from what I, I've been told over years. Um, and, and the other thing is um, with this legislation. Um, if you're unfortunate enough to be involved in a bump, and that bump needn't be your fault, it could be a rear end shunt where somebody's tipped mm. you, the guard will come along and they can now breathalyze you because you're involved in an RTA, as it's called, uh, and you're found as a maybe a professional driver and you have uh, over 20 milligrams in your system, or you're an ordinary driver and you have 60 milligrams. Here you are now, a true no fault of your own, as you might say, boom, looking at a three month ban. Okay. And a euro fine. It is a massive social yep. change. For mm. Massive stuff. But we must get over the the difference between drink driving and drunk driving. This doesn't mean you're crawling around the place. This just means you have alcohol in your system. The law says if it's over so much, you're in bracelets. It's as simple as that. Thank you indeed uh, for that, uh, Tony, and uh, for joining us uh, this morning. Tony Toner is a training director with uh, the Institute of Advanced Motorists of Ireland. Michael Reed on LMFM. Well, there's a a chance for you to vote today. Polling stations are open and Kieran Deneen is on the line to tell us what to expect. He's uh, the public affairs correspondent with uh, the Irish Sun. Kieran, good morning to you. If people are going to vote today, they shouldn't be surprised, first of all, to say that they'll be asked to vote twice. Well, that's, it, it, that, that, that's very true. Uh, obviously, a lot of the focus has been on the uh, presidential uh, election, but um, people will also be, uh, have to vote on the change to the, the proposed change to the Constitution in relation to blasphemy to uh, uh, take the reference to blasphemy out, out of the Constitution. So if, they, if people agree with that, they should um, um, tick the yes box, and if they 
would have liked the um, constitution to remain the same. They should take the no box. But uh, yeah, I think uh, and a lot of people's minds will certainly be the um, the vote for the next president of Ireland. And it's an X that you put in the yes box or an X that you put in the no box? Exactly, yeah. So if you support the uh, uh, the amendment to remove the um, mention of um, blasphemy, then you should uh, take the, put an X in the, in the yes box. Um, and when it comes to the presidential election, uh, it's a proportional representation, so you have to uh, vote uh, number one for the candidate that you that you most like, and uh, number two for the second, uh, and number two for your third preference, and so forth. Or if you prefer, you could just uh, uh, choose the one candidate you like, but um, you can't choose uh, down the tickets down to, down to all for all six. Okay, uh, but uh, you can choose just one uh, if that's. Uh all you're interested in. Exactly. You can put a ticker, uh, you know, in the one box if that's what you go for. But, uh, yeah, you're, 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 the, the, way to, the proper way to do it, I guess, is to call number one and then if you want to do a, a second preference, go uh, And, and what are the do's and don'ts uh, for people who haven't voted before when they go into the polling station today? They can take their phone with them, can't they? Uh, but they shouldn't be taking photographs. Yes, well, I mean, it does say mobile phones are, are prohibited, but um, yeah, essentially, you know, you can have your mobile phone in your pocket, but you're not to be uh, taking it out, and uh, certainly not taking photographs. Uh, we've seen in previous uh, referendums and elections where uh, photographs have appeared on social media, uh, even by uh, I suppose people who should know a lot better involved in process. But yes, uh, certainly uh, photos from inside the boot or inside the station should not be appearing online, so uh, don't take any photographs or Simple rules, really. Don't be abusive to staff and, uh, you know, um, that kind of thing. But uh, it is quite a relaxed uh, atmosphere and a very easy uh, thing to do. You just need to arrive with your polling card if you have one. If you don't have your polling card, uh, you should still be able to vote as long as you're uh, under register. So uh, you may be asked to produce ID and you may not be. So, um, you know, if you're not sure whether you're under register, I guess the thing to do is to go along and, and see, can you vote? And uh, that's the only way you'll, you'll know for sure. And if you have difficulty voting, uh, if uh, you've a, a disability or if you're unsure of what to do, is there help at hand? Exactly. There's certainly lots of help at hand. And, uh, yeah, of course, if you have a disability, there is a staff there that will uh, come to your aid, uh, definitely. But, um, yeah, as I say, you know, if you for people who are unsure, maybe... Uh, can't find a polling card or even if they're out at work at the moment and don't have their ID on them you know they could, they may still be able to vote if, if to go along to the station and um, you know so I think that that is really the advice is to make every effort you can to vote because it is your democratic uh, right to be able to do it so of course there's no onus mm. on people to vote and uh, lots of people won't vote and uh, you know some people will even spoil their votes so um you know, but I guess uh, we, we do like to see people exercising their democratic uh, rights uh, where possible. And if you uh, do want to exercise your democratic right, uh, can you do so if you don't have a polling card? Well, exactly. Yeah. If you don't have a polling card, yeah, you certainly can um, vote as long as you're on the register and you're, and you're on the list. The, uh, the staff in the booth will, uh, will ask you for your name and possibly your ID and possibly not, and they'll check their they're registered to see if you're written down and uh, if you are then you certainly will be able to vote without a polling card exactly Alright listen uh, thanks uh, for that Kieran. Uh, I should mention somebody's been in touch uh, 
uh, I, I'm not sure, and you'd have to listen back to the tape, uh, but uh, they uh, believe I said yes twice in relation to one of uh, the votes today. I don't think that was the case. If I did, it, it certainly was a mistake, and I apologise for it. Uh, no, no. Uh, uh, hopefully that uh, changes that. But if uh, you want to vote yes, put a, a, an X in the yes box, and if you want to vote no, put a, a, a no, a, a X in the no box. Uh, and uh, I suppose that is the message that we were trying to get a, across. If I, if I did make a mistake, my sincere apologies for that, and that's what it was, a mistake. Now, as you've been hearing, Guardian investigating shots fired at a house in Drogheda overnight and uh, local councillors P.O. Smith and Richie Culhan are on the line. P.O. Smith, uh, apparently there were five shots uh, shot at this house last night. This is a, a most serious incident. Good morning, Michael. It is a most serious incident indeed. Uh, and to be honest with you, it's shocking to think that this type of activity can take place in Drogheda. But it's, unfortunately, it's nothing new this year because... Already we had an attempted murder in the town earlier on this year, and then we had a pipe bomb attack. Then we had a number of people arrested, uh, and the guards discovered them with firearms and prescription tablets, and now we have this attack last night. So it all indicates that there is a significant network of criminal activity, organised criminal activity going on in Drada, and probably that there is... uh, uh, a tough war to some extent going on in the town as well in relation to the supply and sale of drugs. Uh, and probably no coincidence uh, that €30,000 30, euro worth of cocaine was seized in Tully Allen overnight. No, probably not. I mean, these criminal networks are, are, are really uh, making inroads into our communities in, in a big way. And they are a threat, as I said before to you, to the survival of our state and on our way of life. And I think that the guards need to be empowered uh, to tackle these networks. And I think we certainly need to look at the anti-gang legislation and see that that need to be strengthened and reviewed uh, and give some powers back to chief superintendents to start, you know, uh, bringing these people to justice because we can't allow this situation to continue. It's just not on. Um, okay. This is a, tra- a threat to young children, to young families. Oh, well, of course. When somebody starts uh, firing uh, bullets like that uh, in a, a built-up housing estate, it's a, a threat to an awful lot of people. Uh, are, are you hearing that it might be part of a, a turf war? Yeah, well, that's that's what I'm hearing back, uh, that it is related, but it may not be, but that's just what I'm hearing back at the minute. And uh, But either way, I mean, anything that's got to do with drugs is related to, to a tough war, in my view, in terms of the uh, in terms of the supply and and the the various gangs that are operating in the town. And, like, this is a reality. I mean, you know, we can't bury our heads in the sand and say it doesn't exist. It does exist. You know, and people who are going out onto the town tonight and maybe are going to sniff some cocaine, they've got to realise one thing. For every sniff that goes up your nose, there's an average of five people killed to get that up up your nose. This is the reality of life at the minute. Richie Culhan, what are you hearing about this incident in Moneymore last night? <clears throat> well, again, like um, Pio said, Michael, uh, you know, this is a, an indiscriminate shooting, basically. Well, discriminatory, I suppose, in terms that one house is targeted. However, five rounds of ammunition going into a house doesn't uh, discriminate between children or adults or whoever they're potential target might have been. Do you know if it was uh, a pistol or a shotgun or what kind of a, a weapon was involved? Well, with, five, with five rounds, uh, it, it would automatically indicate that it's an automatic weapon, which is generally associated with criminal gangs and, and certainly with drugs gangs, because these weapons are coming in from abroad in consignments of firearms as sweeteners, or in consignments of drugs as sweeteners for these uh, drug dealers. Uh, so it would be a, a, an automatic weapon if there was five rounds going into the, into the building. Uh, 
Um, as Peter said, you know, there are or there is a network of uh, criminal uh, drug lords, I suppose you could call them, or drug dealers uh, within the northeast here. And mm. Drogheda is very important in terms of that. Um, now, I know that the guards have had, you know, a lot of uh, success over the last number of months in terms of putting a lot of these guys out of action and seizing a lot of their money and uh, and their drugs. However, you know, the fight has to continue. It's it's it's, it's a very, very serious situation when you have, as P.O. said, attempted murders. Um, what you have to ask yourself is, the innocent victim is, is surely, um, mm. has to be a consideration in this. Are, are they on top of it, though? I, I, I mean, when gangs of this nature are in a, a town the size of Drogheda, you'd have to question the quality of policing, wouldn't you? Well, <laughs> I mean, how how does how how does this sort of thing go under the radar? Well, it doesn't go under the radar. I mean, but the whole the whole point about it is is resourcing and catching these individuals. Well, it's uh, the same thing. I mean, that that's the reason for a poor quality of policing. If it's a question of resourcing, but it's the same thing, is it not? That there's a question over the quality of policing. Yeah. Well, I suppose. I mean, you have you have a point there, Michael, and I won't disagree with you there. The quality of policing, not the quality of police officers, or no. Oh no, I don't mean that at all. Are, no, no. And are the yeah the intelligence that they that they garner for, uh, you know from uh, uh, around criminal organisations. Um, I mean, it's it's a hugely expensive task mm. to to watch these guys on a twenty four hour basis, and the money just isn't there to uh, to carry out operations like this. Certainly for the smaller organisations and the smaller criminals and drug dealers that we have right throughout this country. Um, <clears throat> you know, the, the, the guards, obviously, and as Peter rightly said, uh, information is absolutely key in terms of investigation and putting these guys behind bars, bars. Now, I know a lot of people are very afraid to come forward with information. However, there are people with information in the possession that can help Gardaí, and I'm sure they do on a daily basis. Mm. Uh, deal with these individuals. Well, we were talking recently, P.O. Smith, uh, about people's lives being threatened if they didn't pay somebody else's debt for drugs or girls being told they'd be raped if their brother didn't pay their debt for drugs. Uh, I think you've been speaking to somebody uh, who was asked for €18,000 that somebody else owed for drugs and this is what leads to this kind of thing. Uh, And I I guess uh, in some respects we're having the same conversation we had the last time because... uh, this is an extension to that where now we have gunshots, five shots being fired at a house by an automatic weapon uh, in Richigal Hands uh, view and money more, very built up uh, estate but it does come back to the quality of policing doesn't it? Well, it, it comes back to what I said to you before in relation to each government, each successive government making a decision uh, about values and allocating the appropriate resources to uh, to the guards in relation to tackling this crime. And a very interesting study was done by the University of Limerick, the Greentown study uh, about mapping an area where there was high burglary, high high drug rates, mm. and that produced very interesting results. But it did highlight the fact that the cost involved of carrying out that operation was significant. And when you add that together with the fact that we had an attempted murder in Drada, mm. we had the unfortunate murder of the, the young lad in, in Dunlear earlier on this year. Mm. Uh, when you look at the Garda budget and the allocation of overtime and the amount of money it takes to investigate just those two incidents alone, uh, and then they sapped up 
the majority of the money of the Garda opening budget in Drogheda, the but, largest town as you spend in the country. Do, 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 does it make sense logically that a, a, a town with a population of 40,000 people or thereabouts, that people feel they can walk the streets armed with automatic weapons? No, it's frightening. This is this is really a frightening situation. And to be honest with you, I don't think successive governments have really paid attention to this. I mean, you know, I've I've talked privately to to previous government ministers in the not too distant past, mm. and it doesn't register on their radar that drugs crime and organised crime is a serious threat to this state. And you're after saying something very very simple here. The amount of people and the amount of cars on a daily basis probably travelling through Dundalk and Drawling mm. with handguns or automatic weapons, as Richie said, is significant in my view. And, you know, the guards, you know, don't have the proper resources to address this issue, number one. And the legisla- legislation, I don't think, is strong enough to address this issue, number two. All right, Richie Culhan, uh, try to put it into perspective for me because I really don't understand how this could happen in a, a town of this size. Whatever about it happening in Dublin, and I find it very hard to, to, to believe that fellas can walk down the streets with a, an automatic rifle or whatever it is that they have armed in a, a city of, a, of two million people. Uh, how can it happen in, in a, a town with 40,000 people? It, it just doesn't seem to add up. Yeah, well, in fairness, I mean, you know, in the smallest towns around Ireland, you have a drug situation. You have people uh, consuming drugs and people selling drugs. I know, but that you'd walk down the street with a gun and start shooting it at a house and then yeah. walk but away. And then walk away. That's, that's, that's the other part yeah. of it. Like, you know, I, I don't hear any reports of people under arrest this morning. No, what generally happens is, I mean, these weapons aren't carried, you know, by by people on, a, on you know, on a daily basis, every day of the week, 24-7. The weapons basically are stored. And what happens is well, they're going to do a hit or they're going to do a, a job or a robbery, whatever it might be. And these weapons are, are taken by somebody. They're given to the guy that carries mm-hmm. it, the robbery. Immediately after, they're handed back to whoever stores the weapons and they're disposed of in a safe place for these criminals. They don't carry them around because, I mean, I know for a fact that many of the criminals in the city, in, in the city and indeed in, in Drogheda are stopped on a regular basis and searched, you know. Um, so if that were the case that they were carrying weapons, they would be behind bars fairly quickly. It is a worrying thing, but I mean, Dohada is the largest town in Ireland. It is probably a gateway from Belfast to Dublin uh, for for drugs operators. Um, So you will have a large amount of quantity of drugs in the town um, and people go there to to get their drugs. However, you know, the guards can't be every place at the same time. They have to be quite lucky on occasions unless they have um, intelligence-driven operations uh, where they actually, actually target uh, these criminals. And, you know, as I said, that's, uh, it's, it's a very expensive game, very All expensive right. game okay. to target these guys. All right, well, let's uh, hope they track uh, these uh, people down who were behind uh, whatever weapon was used to fire five bullets at a house downstairs window uh, at a house in Moneymore last night. Thanks both of you for joining us here this morning. Richie Culhan is a Fine Gael councillor, former member of Angarda Síochána, and P.O. Smith is a Labour Party councillor. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. 
15,000 people homeless in this country, depending on who you listen to. Uh, the smaller figure is obviously the figure uh, that government offers, uh, the official figure, and uh, that is uh, being disputed. We'll talk about that in a, a minute with Mike Allen, who's a director with Focus Ireland and on the line with us. Good morning to you, Mike, and uh, thanks Good for morning. your time as always. Uh, but uh, perhaps uh, you'd begin by telling us uh, about the amount of people that you referred to guard stations uh, because there was nowhere else for them to spend the night. Yeah, I think this is the really uh, the, the the whole story of homelessness and, and family homelessness is a, a terrible, bitter story. It's very difficult for everybody who's trapped in that situation. But the the worst end of it, the most uh, risky and, and frightening part of it is when families are in crisis and you need to get them emergency accommodation at night time and for them and their children. And uh, we've recently written to all the uh, local uh, the councillors on Dublin City Council uh, Strategic Policy Committee on, on Housing. They did a discussion about this issue last month and we, we, we felt that they didn't fully understand what the situation was. This has been going on, this type of issue has been arising now for more than three years. And uh, and it's Focus Ireland uh, staff in, the, in our coffee shop and uh, and the intake team, which is run on behalf of the homeless executive with the Peter McVeary Trust, that have, were the first to see this happening and having to respond to it. Mm. And there were absolutely no guidelines as what to do. Um, so we asked for guidelines from the various authorities and got nothing. And we ourselves then created the response, which has been the response for the last number of years, which is that if we come across a family, every effort that you can possibly imagine to find them somewhere to stay is, is, is gone through. Sure. And if at the end of that process, we're unable to, to um, find anywhere anywhere for them, we say to them, the only safe place for you to go um, that we can recommend that's provided by the state is a, a guard station. And that's it's not actually a referral to a garden station. That's the shorthand people use, but it's mm. it's, it's a, it, advice to them. The best advice you could give on 180 occasions last year. So, yeah, so this year, uh, today, 180 occasions. Now, the, the, I think the really important point about that is the vast majority of those were in the first three months of the mm. year. Mm. And at that point, we just said this is impossible. We've been saying this is impossible for for years, but we said, look, people aren't taking this seriously. We, our, our board, in fact, said us to, to write to Catherine Sopolman for, uh, for uh, children and families and uh, um, saying what was happening. And that triggered a, a high-level meeting of the Department of Housing and, about, and the Regional Homeless Executive. Since then, I must say, it's the first time over this period of time I've felt that the, the issue has been taken seriously and a number of significant changes have taken, have taken place. Um, we've been, we started essentially providing a safety net for, for, the, for families who were in these circumstances and found ourselves as the system we were no longer the safety net. We were the entire system. And that meant there was essentially no safety net, except the volunteer groups who, who do a very important job as well to, to help in this area. Um, now the Dublin Regional Homeless Executive has taken over uh, this primary role of finding emergency accommodation for these families. And that allows us to return to a position of being a safety net, um, helping families fall through their system or helping families appeal decisions that, 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 that might need to be um re-explored that they've made in relation, in relation to families. But the remaining piece, and this is why there's this coverage of it today, is we think that the, the, the last piece that's needed, there needs to be a very clear process that, that says what happens should these circumstances ever arise again. If, for instance, I mean, the sort of thing that could happen is that uh, there simply isn't emergency accommodation for a family on, on the night. Um, th- there is what are called contingency beds, beds that are held back for, in case of um, 
sudden influx of families, and that's great. But it, it is possible that a particular event would happen and there'd be a large number of families coming in that couldn't be accommodated. Or it might be that a family turns down the emergency accommodation they're offered because they consider it may involve the mother and father splitting up or they may consider it a place that they think is unsafe. What happens then? Mm. Who gets told? Do the guards get told? Do Tusla get told? Are child protection notices issued? What advice is given to those families? Who makes that decision? Um, all these sort of things need to be written down and they need to be written down before, and let's hope that nothing uh, appalling happens, but before something happens, that's when you do your crisis management. That's what you do mm. when you decide how your systems are fail-safe. Um, and these people exist, uh, but if nobody's being told, they're not being counted, uh, but there is a, a lot of counting going on. I just want to ask you uh, about uh, the homeless figures and the dispute over the uh, number of people who are homeless in this yeah. country, and if that argument actually matters uh, because the official figure is 9,698 and you can take it that that's the minimum number of people who are homeless in this country Uh, and if that is accurate, uh, it's a crisis, it's uh, too much uh, and uh, you don't need to hear that it's 10,000 or 12,000 or 15,000 to to recognise that it's a crisis. Is that a distraction? I think that's I think that's that's the point. Like it's you know, is nobody I don't think is arguing, and not not the minister, not anybody else that it's not a crisis because it's below ten thousand. Everybody recognises the crisis. Um, so the attempts by the, by the department to change the way the figures are counted is it does create an enormous distraction away from concentrating on on solving the issues. But it is important to say it is a distraction that they, the the department and the minister seem to have thrown into the system entirely themselves. The Department of Housing has had a huge problem over the last number of years about all its statistics. Um, uh, you know, number of houses built, number of vacant units, you, you name it, there's a, there's a problem over it. There was one figure which everybody in the sector agreed was, measured what it said it was measuring. The figure for the number of homeless individuals and families and children measured the number of people in emergency accommodation that was paid for by the state as emergency accommodation. It's a very administrative figure. It tells you what we as taxpayers are paying to put people in emergency accommodation and how many families and individuals are covered by that. And then they start introducing completely different sort of ideas. Well, what if you've got a key to your own house? And mm. you know, what if uh, you've got a separate front door? And, you know, sort of interesting philosophical discussions they might have in uh, universities about the nature of homelessness, but totally irrelevant to the task of, of solving the problem. Um, and I don't think they should be spending that. It's a distraction for them as well as for us and as well as, uh, and the media. It's a completely waste of time. We had an agreed figure. It was one of the few agreed figures. Go back to it, stick to it, and then we can concentrate all our energies on trying to look at the how can we prevent families becoming homeless? How can we get families out of homelessness as quickly as possible? How can we make sure that there's least damage is done to people while they're homeless? All right. Thanks very much indeed. I have to go to headlines, so we leave it there. And thank you for joining us this morning. Mike Allen, Director of Focus Ireland. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now let's find out what you've been saying to us. Marie Kearns joins us with some of the calls and text messages that have been coming to us this morning. Good morning to you, Marie. Good morning, Michael. Lots of them coming in today. Plenty of people reacting to the new drink driving rules. An email from John who says, Hi, Michael, we really know how to complicate some things in this country. This should have been a simple piece of legislation, zero tolerance. If you drink any amount and drive, you should lose your licence automatically, one year with no appeal. 
Okay, well, it is pretty much that, except it's three months. But yeah, it's pretty much what we're talking about. Another listener says, Michael, was was listening to your interview. Is there any chance you know exactly how much we can drink now? It's all very complicated. Mm. Hard to know when you hear about milligrams against milligrams of alcohol. Well, you I can know, give you blood. that. I can give you that spiel, but that's yes. about it. Uh, no is the answer. Uh, I mean, you will uh, find people who'll give you an estimate, uh, but that might be right for one person and wrong for the next person. Or if it's right for you today, it might be wrong for you tomorrow. Yes, and glass sizes mm. can differ too. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, you know, uh, it's units that they yes, talk about. Yes, so like, uh, Yeah, it shouldn't matter the glass size. It's the units. There's seven units, let's say, in a, yes. a bottle of wine. There's two yes. units in a pint of beer. Yeah. Uh, and they say that it takes... Uh, an hour for every unit to come that's out of right. your system. And that's probably the best way of doing it. I mean, if you're talking about drinking tonight and worried about driving tomorrow, count how many drinks you had, know how many units are in it. In other words, uh, uh, a short is one unit. Yes. Uh, a glass of wine is yes. one unit, but there's seven u- seven glasses in a bottle. Okay, Okay, yeah. not four. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, uh, and a, a pint is two units, so... If you have four pints tonight, let's say, yes. well, then you need eight hours uh, for it to go through your system. For it to go through your system, because there's eight units. Yes, and you often hear people, oh, sure, I've had something mm. to eat, but that can be deceiving oh, too. Oh, no, no relevance exactly. at all. The exactly. amount of sleep, the amount of, this yeah. is what they say, at least the yes. amount of sleep, the amount uh, you eat, any of that stuff has no bearing on it. Another listener says, Tim from County Meath, I think this uh, new... Uh, drink driving uh, legislation is very unfair. You might just have a drop of alcohol in your system from the night before and you could end up being banned from driving. It's over the top. Another blow to rural pubs, says Tim. Okay, well, I mean, this is what you have to consider if you are drinking tonight and you're going to drive tomorrow. uh, Are you over the limit? It's not a question, as Tony was saying, of whether you're drunk. It's a question of drink in your system. Dermot from Dundalk uh, says uh, never a word about speeding on the roads Michael cars capable of doing over twice the speed limit why they are allowed to manufacture cars like this I don't know Dermot says I don't drink myself except on very special occasions Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile with the price of just about everything going up during inflation we thought we'd bring our prices down so to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Think a glass of beer is a ridiculous limit. It's gone absolutely crazy. More accidents caused by speed, and now people will be worried about driving the morning after the night before. Mm. Gone overboard in my book. Okay, well, I suppose it might be one of the problems, and I think there's often uh, discussions about speeding. But when they talk about uh, your decision making being impaired, yes, maybe you think it's okay to drive a little bit faster and that's uh, one of the things I think that happens when people have a drink on them. Charlie phoned in he was also talking about speeding but says first off that he is delighted that they are bringing in Mm. the legislation and says that his hope is that it will be enforced and that you will have Gardaí out Mm. checking people because that's the only way it'll make a difference but he wants to mention about speeding and also about people on their mobile phones he Mm. says that that needs to be tackled next. He mentioned just an instant in Nav and yesterday he says he was on a laneway that's used by a lot of people as a shortcut mums um, walking kids to school and a young lady he says thought she was a speed driver a, ra- a, a race car driver because she was driving so fast and you see this all the time. Mm, yeah. Yeah, you do. So he wanted and, to make that point. And I think he's right about the mobile phones. It seems to be as bad as it ever was. Tosh from Dundalk texted in to say, you get people saying, oh, sure, I will go down the, to Mickey's to a house party. Sure, I'll be OK. Mm. It's only down the road. Sure, I'll be OK. Or sure, I'll, I'll just go to the pub down the road and have a few jars and drive mm. home. Sure, I'll be OK. It's in a quiet area. It's a quiet road and I'll take a chance like I always did. But from today, your chance could put you off the road. And it's better that you take stock. The message is, um, if you drink and drive you and you get caught, you deserve to be put off the road and you'll have to get a bike. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's a, an automatic disqualification yes. from today for a very, very low limit. Another listener says the new alcohol bill puts people off the road if they drink and drive. A great piece of legislation and applies to the morning after as well. If you go out on the binge or for one drink, you should uh, leave your car at home and let a friend drive you or take a taxi. Mm, Uh, John from Navin... um, was in touch and and John says that he thinks that this legislation is a step too far that he feels that we had already tackled drink driving significantly in this country already. Hmm. Okay, well we have to a large degree it's certainly not like it used to be and uh, to a large degree because of the change in the laws, uh, it's not that long yes. ago when uh, I think you were legally permitted to drive with two or three pints on you. Yes. Uh, and uh, obviously those limits have been coming down. This latest change is a change in the penalty. Thomas from Dundalk says there has been enough adverts over the years regarding drinking and driving that was ignored by many people. Maybe this change will stop drink drivers killing themselves and killing others. Yeah, well, anything that improves road safety has to be welcomed. Another John from Navin says uh, they, the people with cigarettes, they got them and now they're after the people who drink. John says, I'm not one bit happy. It's not right. It's gone over the top completely. I'd have a drink myself, he says, and I wouldn't drive. 
But I feel now that you'd be worried if you were over the limit the next day. Mm. And there's many people that depend on a licence for a job. Mm. If they go for a drink the night before, they could end up being caught when they're not drunk. If it's still in this, their system, it seems, they could end up losing their jobs because they lose their licences. Well, if uh, they're brought in and breathalyzed, uh, yes, uh, or if they're stopped and breathalyzed, yes, uh, they will be off the roads. And if that means you lose your job, you lose your job, yeah. Deirdre from Kell says that if we are going to be so strict on drink driving and have such drink dri- strict dri- drink driving laws in place, surely there's an argument for a better public transport system. Some people in rural areas will be affected by these laws they don't have the same choices as people who live in urban areas and she doesn't think it's she doesn't think it's fair in that regard mm. that's what the rural TDs were saying too well they? I don't know I don't think we need uh, a change in drink driving legislation to make an argument for better public transport <laughs> I think we just need better public transport well, that's yeah. true Michael mm. uh, moving from that uh, and there was such an amount in about that uh, just to get to a couple of other mm. topics there's a lot still coming in in relation to the schools and the situation regarding the structural concerns. But John uh, from Navin had a, an interesting perspective, I suppose you could say about it. This is a different John. All yeah. the Johns from mm. Navin that we're mm. on today. And John says that um, he's dumbfounded at the number of schools that are having to be inspected and indeed, th- and indeed those that have closed. He says that he's heard it's been done because it could pose a danger in a windstorm. And he's heard that there's fears that some of the walls could fall down in strong winds. But he says over the last couple of months, we've had three of the strongest windstorms in the past couple of decades and the buildings have withstood them all with the strong wind gusts and he wonders why there is a threat is it health and safety gone mad? Uh, No I wouldn't think so I'd say it's expert uh, advice uh, from engineers who know about these things and I I think uh, those of us who don't know about these things or don't have any real engineering understanding would know that uh, a building can be affected differently depending on which way the wind catches it. Maureen from Navin also got in touch on the same topic and she's wondering was there no supervision when the building works were going on Mm. in the schools that my son built a house and paid 2,500 to have somebody supervise the building of it Mm. to make sure it was done properly and she says that it wouldn't have been signed off by the bank if that hadn't have been done. Yeah. I was just wondering about well, that. I mean, I, I think that's more of a comment than a question, you know, and I think that's what we're all asking ourselves. Yes. And if not, why not? Uh, I mean, it's just beggar's belief. Another listener wants to know, did the county councils in any of the areas have responsibility because it was in their jurisdiction, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Uh, should they have been monitoring the building that was going on? Mm. Well, I mean, as I understand it uh, from listening to a, uh, the engineer uh, speaking on television news the other night, uh, I mean, there was a, a series of inspection, uh, but uh, it was somebody that you hired yourself uh, and it wasn't an independent system of inspection. Uh, very, very loose regulation. And John from RD, why were the county councils not at the schools taking samples of the concrete Mm. John wants to know so still a lot of concern over that Michael yeah well I mean the idea of nine tonnes of concrete falling into a a playground uh, is enough to make anybody think I suppose 
I'm sure we'll know more now in the coming days as to what's going to happen. Yeah, but I think all of the schools will be checked yes, over the weekend. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So there'll be more on that. All right, we'll finish okay. up there. Thanks for that, Marie. Thanks to everybody who has been in touch with us. Remember, if you'd like to add to what's being said, as always, we'd love to hear from you and you can ring Marie or Maggie now on 1850 Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. Now, Finna TD for Me the West, uh, Shane Castles uh, joins us uh, to talk a, a little bit about how he voted on moving uh, the abortion legislation uh, to the next stage in the Oireachtas. Uh, he voted in favour of it going to committee stage. Uh, I was saying on the programme uh, that that came as a, a bit of a surprise to me, at least, and uh, I would imagine to some people, given how you articulated against uh, the referendum and uh, the proposal to repeal the Eighth Amendment. And I would have thought that you'd have always voted against abortion legislation. Uh, good morning, Michael. Yes, and, and you're, you're quite right. And I still hold those views. And um, as I had said prior to the election, I wasn't going to facilitate uh, the coming about of the moving of, of legislation to hold that referendum. And I didn't. And I voted against that. And when it came to the actual referendum itself, um, I voted against that proposal as well. Uh, But as you quite rightly said, there has been a referendum. There has been a public vote. um, It got a sizable majority. And my job as a Chakta Dála, a messenger to the Dáil, is to respect the will of the people. And I'm heading towards three years, uh, privileged enough to be in this particular position, but I'm nearly 20 years in political life itself. And... I respect the will of the people. I respect the, the voice of the people in particular in terms of a referendum. And if we start going down paths where um, one person thinks they are bigger than the cumulative voice of the country, uh, well, then that actually goes to the heart of undermining democracy. And whilst this is a very sensitive subject, it's a very personal subject for myself and many, and I'm saddened by the result, I have no right to block the will of the people uh, in the doll. And people who know me, who share my views who are equally as saddened by the result, but respect the fact that I have no personal right uh, to block uh, the will of the people having expressed that mm. in a public vote uh, by way of referendum. Well, I suppose everybody says uh, they respect the will of the people or they want to respect the will of uh, the people. Uh, and uh, if you look at somebody like Padre Tobin, he's saying that he's respecting the will of one third of the people who voted uh, against uh, the referendum. He also said something along the lines of uh, you had claimed to be more pro-life than him at one stage. Uh, I, I don't remember it being said, but he did say something uh, to that uh, effect. But he, he's taking a position, uh, and he says that's because of how he feels himself personally on the subject and that it also reflects the will of one-third of the people. Uh, it's a similar view to Eamon O'Queeve and Mark McSharry of Fianna Fáil. Yeah, and I'm not going to talk about Pather or Eamon or, or Mark because I, I'm sure everyone um, had their own personal feelings to have to grapple with um, people who have very passionate feelings mm. about this on the on the no side uh, equally as myself as well but as I said the the bottom line for, for me is that I cannot go in and, and block the majority of the will of the people I mean we, we had a contest we had a vote uh, in my lifetime probably the most um, engaged and heated referendum. Like we have a referendum to debate today and I know during the week uh, Marie carried out a very good vox pop and a lot of people didn't even know there was a referendum uh, actually happening today in conjunction with the presidential election. Mm. Well, you certainly couldn't have said that back in May. I think everyone was very well aware there was a referendum. It engaged people. You couldn't walk down uh, the street in terms of now people saying, well, we didn't know maybe what we were particularly voting for. You walk down the street in Ireland, 
the posters gave you the graphic image of what, what was the net outcome of that particular vote. You were voting for abortion and people by two thirds majority voted for that. Okay. And so in terms of saying I, I of course I respect the, the one third who voted no. I'm one of them. Mm. I'm one of that of that number. You could have taken the position that uh, I think it was nine Fianna Fáil TDs took a, a, and abstained. There was there was seven seven, seven that, that abstained. Nine present, two voted a, 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 on on the on the yeah, blue button. Yeah, yeah. Again, my job as a legislator, I take extremely seriously, and my job was to respect the will of both the country and indeed my constituents in Mead West, whose view the majority of whom I disagreed with, but whose view I was not going to disregard and disrespect. And I still hold the same view I had prior to the election as well. I mean, if we start to have a position whereby, you know, we actually vote laws through in the minority position, well, I mean, I mean in that case, in 2011, when I was beaten by Pather uh, for the seat for Dáil Éireann, could I have rocked up to the Dáil and said, well, I have 18% of the vote, I want to go through the gates and take the seat that Pather won? No, you couldn't, because the, the reality is you go with the majority vote. And as unpalatable and as personally difficult as that has been uh, for me, I respect the democracy that I live in. And this is one particular issue. Mm. If the next particular issue comes along, and, and please God, I have a long life, a political life, and I will work hard to ensure that, but I can't have a situation whereby I, I change my principle on whether I, you know... Did you come w- under any pressure within the party? Within the party, no. No, mm. um, I have to say, and... Uh, that actually was something we were given the breathing space uh, throughout this whole campaign, mm. uh, both prior to the election and even since. And, and, and 18 TDs, including yourself, decided to campaign a- against the proposal. Yeah. yeah. And, and and as I said, both prior to the referendum and since then, there has been never, and you'd read a lot of media speculation, there was never any pressure put from party leadership or party hierarchy in terms of, I wasn't asked mm. before last Tuesday what way I was going to cast a vote. Uh, and, what about and amendments? Do you want to table any amendments? Because uh, there was talk of some Fianna Fáil TDs doing that and then I, I think they were told that if they wished to table amendments it had to be done through Stephen Donnelly. In other words, it needed approval. Yeah, any any, any of the... Well, again, if you're a political party you go through your party senior spokesperson to do that. And in respect of the amendments, what I've seen happen in nearly instantaneously since the vote on Tuesday afternoon is that both the pro-life side and the pro-choice side, mm. and I hate using those words, but just to simplify it, mm. um, have been instantaneously, the mass emails have been coming in, and both sides are using the same argument, that the, the legal technical definition of the vote and the referendum was simply to repeal, you can legislate any way you want. Now, if you accept that principle, mm. and I don't, people were provided with uh, the heads of the bill, they knew what they were voting for before the referendum mm. happened and a lot of people on the pro-life side are saying mm. no don't be beholden to that but yeah. now what, ha- what I've seen happen mm. is obviously people who are f- advocating a more liberal form mm. of abortion are actually using that argument again and saying that's fine we actually want uh, more liberalised you're not mm. beholden and not mm. caught yeah. and they're actually and now they've, they've sent give in a up set the 72 of a, hour yeah, they've given in a set of amendments that sort of thing. so I think mm. the people of Ireland were given the proposals and there's a lot of people who perhaps were uncomfortable voting mm. yes, but as, as you have pointed out, the only way that they could deal with fatal fetal abnormalities, another way was to, mm. to provide for the, the, the bill as was set out. But now 
people on who are looking for a more liberalised abortion are trying to push that further. We, so were, just talking, to, we, yeah, but we were just talking about the drink driving legislation <laughs> uh, that comes into force today. Uh, that took its time coming through because of filibustering and amendments and all this sort of stuff. Uh, and there are ways of delaying legislation, delaying the inevitable, even if it is inevitable, but you can delay it. Uh, and that's an option that's open to you. Uh, you're not taking that option. Uh, is that because your politics are more important to you personally than your moral compass? No, and I don't. I don't mix that. I would. I, I reject that charge. Now, oh, Michael, no, it's not a charge. Uh, it's, know, a, it's a yeah, question, and no, it's you know. I mean, my 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 my, my, my morals and my, my set of values are as strong as 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 they were. And and the only person that'll judge me is, I'm I I believe in God, and He'll be the only person that'll judge me on my morals in terms of my political. And I'm not making a judgment. I'm asking you a, a okay. question, and in, I, I, I it was put to you uh, honestly. Okay, mm-hmm. and in terms of the. Um, the antics in terms of filibustering I don't believe in that uh, tactic either in the Dáil I think you make your you make your point in the time allocated no matter what the debating point is and I think it actually belittles the Dáil and belittles, belittles democracy and debate if you're if you're engaging in those antics as was done in terms of the, the, the drink driving legislation mm. and I don't think it would serve the Dáil or the country well if the same route is taken uh, in respect to this legislation yeah, As far as you're concerned though this debate is over and uh, you'll facilitate uh, the legislation making its passage through the Oireachtas. The, the, the debate was held as a, as a national conversation with the people of Ireland. The people of Ireland voted for abortion and it is now the doll's job to enact what the people of Ireland uh, sought. Mm. What is Ireland? I suppose is the next question and uh, the idea that Fianna Fáil might be fielding a, a candidate in Northern Ireland. Well, that's a conversation that's been going on um, mm. for quite some time. Well, it went on last night, didn't it? <laughs> Internally within the party as well. Um, I I know um, Sorka just to say hello to. I've met her because she's a member of our national executive. Mm. I've just I've just met her, and I see the Senator Daly and Deputy O'Keefe were at uh, her particular launch last night. I just I just happened to see that on social media last S- night. Sorka McInnesby. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so um, she's a member of our national executive mm-hmm. because we now um, have have branched into. But she was nominated as a Fianna Fáil candidate, and then Fianna Fáil said she's not our candidate. Yeah, I mean it's 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 surely going to cause um, a lot of debate about the next national executive meeting anyway. So, <laughs> what are your thoughts on it? Those a bit of uh, an embarrassment, was it not? No, well, I, I actually uh, can I just say, and I think mm. you've spoken to him extensively as well on this show. Senator Mark Daly has yeah. done a huge mm. amount of work on. Um, on the unification of Ireland both in terms of what the cost would be in terms of what the cost benefit would mm. be he's very passionate no one has actually done more work on producing reports than that man I've had him down in Meath as well talking about the issue and I know that at uh, an event that we held uh, back in May as well uh, in Athboy for to mark the 20th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement and we had uh, Bertie O'Hearn down as uh, our former leader speaking Tommy Gorman was doing the interview and actually Paddy Duffy was doing MC Lord of Mercy on a, a native Athboy man mm. just to mention Paddy but Bertie was asked that night by Tommy Gorman in terms of Fianna Fáil mobilising in the north would it happen should it happen and he said yes it needed to happen because I think there's a window of opportunity for us there. I've said this before on your show before. I think we've got a polarisation of opinions. I think you do need a centrist middle ground party to go in there and offer people an alternative. But I think that window, we need to, we need to grasp it. All right. Listen, thanks for coming in to no us uh, this morning uh, and uh, for joining us on uh, the programme as always. Shane Castles is uh, a Fianna Fáil TD in Mid West. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. 
Time now, as is usual around this time on Friday, for our review of the contributions made in Lancer House this week by TDs and Senators from Counties Louth and Meath. The report is brought to you by the Houses of the Oireachtas. Here is our parliamentary correspondent, Ken Murray. Hello again and welcome to this week's edition of the Louth Meath Oireachtas Report. We begin a roundup this week with a contribution made in the Dáil on Wednesday. Fianna Fáil TD for Meath West Shane Castles asked on Taoiseach Leif Radker on the status of the geothermal bill which he said has huge implications for Navan and its hinterland. I live in a town where mining is one of the largest employers, as we have over 600 people employed in Tara Mines, the largest zinc mine in Europe. Now, previously, Pat Rabbit, in the last government, had discussed plans for a multi-million euro geothermal energy project for Navan as part of a discussion backed by Tara Mines, and we've heard no more about it. And zinc is obviously a finite resource and is going to run out over the next decade or two. And we suddenly have hundreds of families left without employment, 600 in that mine. And I'm sure you would agree with me that starting a conversation now about how we could have alternatives in place ahead of the cliff edge is more favourable than us standing outside the gates of a closed mine when the inevitable happens. And that advancing those alternative energy generators and employment options deserves to be spoken about in this chamber and a conversation about it now. Thank you, Deputy Castles. Work on developing the Geothermal Energy Development Bill has been deferred until other legislative priorities have been dealt with. The closure of the authentic food company in Dundalk last week and the loss of 180 jobs was raised in both houses of the Oireachtas during the week. Speaking in the Senate on Tuesday, Labour Senator Jed Nash said this particular company closure is suspicious because of the nature by which it was executed. Now 180 workers in Lundock are in a desperately uncertain set of circumstances. They haven't been formally made redundant uh, and they aren't legally entitled to uh, the 30-day redundancy uh, notice period to allow them to work with their trade union to work on an improved or enhanced redundancy package. They haven't earned any money. Uh, since the plant closed, and despite the great support, the support they've received from officials in the Department of Social Protection in the area, of course, if you don't have your P45, uh, then uh, your entitlement to social welfare is moot. So they cannot or they won't take up alternative employment either, because they hope that somehow IDA, EI or other uh, state agencies might find an alternative operator for the facility in Dundalk. And in the meantime, life goes on, mortgages and rent needs to be paid, bills need to be paid, and families need to be fed. And ultimately, Minister, the law needs to be changed. Sinn Féin TD Gerry Adams told the Dáil on Wednesday that the behaviour of Authentic Foods is totally unacceptable. The Managing Director of Authentic Foods, Nick Basran, claims that the management carried out a comprehensive review of the business to try and find a way to make it profitable over the long term, but he said this was not possible. The Minister has a responsibility to ask what type of review is it that excludes the workers' representatives, that refuses to engage directly with Unite, what kind of review is it that can be manipulated by employers so that these workers have no notice pay, no P45, no reference and no redundancy payments and no income for six weeks. In my view, it's very calculated. Jerry Adams' party colleague Imelda Munster asked Minister of State Pat Breen what the government is doing for the 180 affected workers. 180 people have just lost their jobs, Minister. And now they face a month with no income, no social welfare to be able to, to rely on to tide them over. So how are they going to pay their bills, Minister, or feed their families as we approach the next 30 days? And Minister... 
what I want to know is how do you propose to rectify this situation? This situation, this mess was brought about. It wasn't of the workers' make, making. So how do you propose to rectify this? Minister of State Pat Breen said the state is doing all it can to assist those who lost their jobs. I think we've acted very quickly in relation to this and the intro team in Dundalk have as well. And, uh, they met the workers on Monday afternoon at Ballymiscanlan Hotel, as you know, on this, etc. And the priority there was to expedite payments, offer them help and assistance in relation to the public cards, registration, all that information. And of course, as I said in my reply earlier, an information and recruitment event will take place in the Crown Plaza Hotel on the 1st of November, like between 10am and 1pm. That's really important because everybody will be attending this, this, uh, this event. You will have ETB, the Education and Training Board, Dundalk IT will, will attend there as well, the local enterprise offices, the National Learning Network, you know, the revenue will be there, money advice and budgetary service, the Citizens Advice Service, all the agencies will be there to help and assist these people who have unfortunately found themselves in this unpredictable situation. The new Garda Commissioner, Drew Harris, was told there is not enough space at Dundalk Garda Station and that a vacant property adjacent to Dramad Station on the Laudarmar border is not being used at all. The comments were made by independent TD Peter Fitzpatrick at the Oireachtas Justice Committee on Wednesday. My main concerns with the Garda Station is there doesn't seem to be an inch of space left. In fairness, like, like the amount of stuff they're taking in, the amount of investigation they're doing, and like, they're doing a good job. We also visit... Uh, the Dramad Garda Station, which is kind of a, a kind of a prefab building there at the moment, is I, I don't know whether you're familiar or not with it. No, and a good few years ago, is uh, they bought they bought a house beside beside the Garda Station, and uh, it's an awful shame that that's not being used. The Oireachtas discussed a Fianna Fáil private members' bill during the week aimed at penalising those who sell and purchase illicit goods. Party TD for Louth, Declan Brannock, told the Dáil on Wednesday that the money lost to the Exchequer could fund a vast range of public services. 13% of all packs of cigarettes held in Ireland are illegal, representing a loss to the Exchequer of £229 million in 2017 alone and £1.7 billion between the years 2010 and 2017. As the retailers against smuggling have said, enough to build 8,400 social housing units in this country. For alcohol, during 2017 alone, revenue seized 95,021 litres of illicit alcohol, with an estimated value of 0.91 million. Total seizure in Ireland for alcohol has increased by 100% and is continuing to increase yearly. The loss to the economy in this sector between 2010 and 2014 was 655 million money that could be spent on railing health services rather than lining the pockets of these criminal gangs. The Dole was told on Wednesday that the government is doing all it can to ensure there are as few delays as possible at ports when Brexit occurs next March. The comments were made by Minister of State and Fine Gael TD for Meath East, Helen McEntee. The Commission published a report recently looking at um, ports within Europe and on the European border, uh, highlighting the challenges that they may face, um, particularly given the fact that if there is um, any kind of a border between the UK and the rest of the European Union, that there will be delays, that there will be checks. And of course, from an Irish point of view, we can't be held up as part of those delays and as part of those checks. And that's something that we're engaging with our European colleagues, particularly Belgium and France, to try and address those concerns that have been raised.
The growing number of vacant school sites in County Meath was raised in the Shannon on Tuesday. Fine Gael Senator Ray Butler said it did not make sense for such sites to be vacant when investors and community groups are crying out for properties. In my constituency, we have four areas in Trim, at Boy, Kildalki and Kells, where we have old school sites left. And in Trim, we had the old convent on Patrick Street last week went up on fire. And at Boy, we have a company interested in buying the old site. In Kildalki, we have a, a new school after being opened, and basically we have a site and it's been vandalised already. And in Kells, we have a, another new school and a Eureka school, and there's an old site there. Surely that we can give them to community groups under government schemes to, to, to go in and run maybe little coffee shops or community centres, but it's terrible to see these buildings vacant and being wrecked and basically left in ruins in rural Ireland. So I'd like the Minister, if he could come in here, and that we bring in legislation not to be leaving these sites for years vacant and going into wreck and ruin and be destroyed. A company at the centre of controversy over the temporary closure of certain schools due to alleged inferior construction standards was criticised in the Dáil on Tuesday. Fianna Fáil TD from Eid East, Thomas Byrne, called on the Education Minister to exclude the company from all future project tendering. There is the issue of Western building systems who are still looking for contracts. The Minister for Public Expenditure is there in relation to procurement. He has to show that there are deficiencies in their work. And I want you to confirm, Minister, that you will say that that bar has been reached and that Western building systems should not be getting the benefit of state contracts anymore. They should be out and too much has been put up with them. This started off as very serious fire safety deficiencies and now we find even probably more serious structural deficiencies. They need to be gone and we need to get proper standards and we need the Department of of Education inspecting these projects themselves and not just leaving it to outsiders. And that contribution by Fianna Fáilte Day for Meath East, Thomas Byrne, concludes our Loud Me the Oireachtas summary for this week. So until next time, this is Ken Murray for the Houses of the Oireachtas Weekly Report. Thanks, Ken. And Ken Murray will have another Loud Me the Oireachtas report for us in November following uh, the recess. The reports are brought to you by the Houses of the Oireachtas. Michael Reed on LMFM. The Garda Commissioner is to meet with the Justice for the Forgotten Group. This follows a meeting of the Justice Committee and we'll hear a little bit now about what Drew Harris had to say about the Dublin Monaghan bombings when he was asked about this by the Committee Chairman Sinn Féin's Cuivre no Quailon. There was an earlier reference to the Dublin and Monaghan bombings, mm-hmm. Commissioner, the 17th of May 1974 day that I will never forget. And uh, it was with no reference to a hierarchy of victimhood, but it was the single uh, greatest atrocity throughout all the years uh, of conflict that we have known on this island um, in relatively recent times. Um, the Houses of the Oireachtas, this parliament, has on three occasions unanimously passed motions seeking, appealing for a full cooperation with the appointed inquirer inquirers into the Dublin and Monaghan bombings, uh, appealing to the British government and its agencies to fully cooperate in the provision of all documentation, information, files relevant 
to the respective inquiries into those matters that took place north of the border and elsewhere, if that be the case. Um, in response earlier, you know, um, Deputy Commissioner Toomey took the response to one of my colleagues' inquiries in relation to this particular matter. Um, you had yourself indicated earlier a willingness to meet with victims mm -hmm. and representatives of victims. In this particular instance, the organisation Justice for the Forgotten, uh, very heroically led, I may say, by a lady known as Margaret Irwin. Um, can I ask, will you uh, facilitate an opportunity to meet with Miss Irwin and with victims of the Dublin and Monaghan bombings, survivors and bereaved families. There were 33 deaths involved. Well, these atrocities are now my responsibility to investigate. So, um, and in the preface of comments in, in that regard, uh, I'm very much aware of my obvious responsibilities around these. And um, if I might take time then to consider your questions and then come back uh, to you yes. on where we are at this moment in time. Your earlier question about uh, meeting with the group uh, Justice, uh, for, the Justice for, for the Forgotten. Um, yes, of course, yes. Uh, I will meet with uh, I will meet with them. Um, the the only the, when you say uh, about hope for individuals, and I think I have to temper that remark a little. My, my experience of trying to investigate these these matters, uh, legacy matters as they're now called, has been one of, of frustration um, that there's very little that, that is achieved through the criminal justice route. Um, and so uh, I will meet with them and will consider the points that you've made and will respond to those. But um, as, as these cases have proved down through the years to be um, incredibly difficult, actually, to, to, in effect, bring to a successful criminal justice conclusion. The one may be able to, uh, to find other information which is new. Um, uh, it's very rare that that leads to criminal justice actual uh, end into this. Well, in this particular instance, and I close with this, yeah. in this particular instance, it's that information held long past has not been forthcoming. And this has been uh, repeated time after time uh, by those entrusted with the exercise of investigation and inquiry. And uh, in reflection of that failure to cooperate on the part of the British government and all its agencies, including the RUC in its time, in terms of uh, proffering, presenting uh, what information that it could share in relation to those particular events of that uh, day back in May 1974. Now, that's a, a somewhat edited version of uh, the interaction uh, between uh, the chair of uh, the Justice Committee, Sinn Féin TD, Cuivine O'Kalon, and uh, the new Guard Commissioner, Drew Harris. As you've been hearing, the Commissioner has said that he will meet with Margaret Irwin and uh, the Justice for the Forgotten Group. Margaret is on the telephone. Good morning to you, and thanks as always for joining us. Uh, is this a, a welcome development, I, I take it? 
Pardon? I, I take it this is a, a welcome development that the Commissioner is willing to meet you given his past history uh, and uh, the time that he spent in the PSNI. Yes, absolutely. We're, we're very pleased that he has agreed to meet with us. We had actually written to him a couple of weeks ago seeking such a meeting and uh, we had received just an acknowledgement. So this is a very welcome development indeed and uh, indeed I'm in the process of writing to him to requesting him to set a date for that meeting. And your expectations are, are uh, in line uh, with what he was saying there. You're not expecting uh, that there would be uh, criminal prosecution. No, we're not expecting that there would be criminal prosecutions. Um, what um, our family members have always been seeking is the truth of what happened and to get as much information as possible um, in relation not just to Dublin Monaghan but to all the other cases um, whose families we represent. And uh, we hope to discuss all our cases with the Garda Commissioner when we meet with him, uh, including but not only just uh, Dublin and Monaghan. And... Are you optimistic uh, that Drew Harris, as Guard Commissioner, may be able to give you information uh, that he is privy to because of his role in the PSNI? Well, we we don't know whether he will be willing to do that. Uh, He was clearly in a position to have knowledge of the suspects in all of the cases um, that we we hope to discuss with him, because all of the cases, um, practically all of the cases, all of the families we represent, their their loved ones were killed as a result of actions and um, perpetrators who originated in Northern Ireland. So uh, he certainly would be in a position to have knowledge of these suspects uh, over many years, uh, we understand he served to- totally for a total of over 30 years mm. in both the RUC and the PSNI. But that remains to be seen. But certainly what uh, we will be um, asking him to do is to review all the cases, uh, bearing in mind that nobody has ever been charged, much less convicted in relation to any of the cases. And, um, you know, that's that's not... We know now that after 40 years plus that the likelihood, as you said yourself, of any convictions mm. is uh, is very unlikely. But that's really not what we're seeking. What we're seeking really is information. That's what the families are, are seeking uh, in the main. Uh, I'm not sure it's likely, though, that he, he will give you information uh, because uh, it, it seems more likely uh, that he's prohibited from doing so by law. Uh, as I said, that was a, 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 an edited extract of uh, the interaction on the Dublin Monaghan bombings and the possibility of meeting yourself, but it was a very long meeting. Uh, the committee met for two and a half, three hours, and throughout the meeting uh, there was uh, talk about uh, the State's Secrets Act, uh, which he is sworn to uh, north of the border and now south of the border, which puts him in a a, a very interesting but tricky position. Uh, And he he may be prohibited under the State Secret Act from giving you the type of information that you're looking for. Well, he may be prohibited from giving us that sort of information. But um, if we just bear in mind for a moment that um, the Northern Ireland Office Legacy Section uh, is um, has been conducting uh, is bringing forward legislation to set up a historical investigations unit and uh, other mechanisms as well that were agreed under the Stormont House Agreement. Now the HIU is not going to be set up here, uh, which we find quite discriminatory. But um, it has been uh, the Minister for Justice has stated clearly in the House 
that the Garda Commissioner has full responsibility for all legacy cases in this jurisdiction. And uh, if and when the, um, the Stormont House mechanisms are established, and particularly the HIU, we will be, um, we will be uh, stressing to him the importance of establishing a dedicated unit here staffed with some senior guardie to interact with the HIU um, and uh, because as I say no HIU is to be set up here but if it's uh, set up in the north there will be there is bound to be information available then uh, which can be made available because it's not just a matter of of um, the Republic of Ireland providing information to the north it should be a two-way thing and that there will be information uh, coming from north to south as well. Okay. So it's very important that uh, this dedicated unit be set up. And you'll and get to make that argument uh, with uh, the Commissioner because yes, he's uh, agreed now so. to meet with yes, you. That's okay. right. yes, Perhaps yes, uh, we can indeed. talk uh, after that meeting and hopefully yes. it'll be successful to some degree. And thank you indeed for joining yes. us this morning. All right. Thank you very much, Michael. Thank you indeed. Margaret Irwin, coordinator of the Justice for the Forgotten Group, brings our programme to its conclusion today and indeed for the this week. I hope you have a, a lovely long weekend and God willing we'll see you for our next programme on Tuesday morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning, bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie